Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, seven years ago this month, Pope Benedict XVI abdicated and he was followed by Pope Francis II. You might be aware of a film that's been out recently called The Two Popes, which features a fictitious meeting between these two men. And in some ways, they do re represent two wings, if you like, of the Catholic Church. But one thing is for certain, and that is that the Catholic Church has faced what is now known as an existential crisis for a long time. And I'm very pleased, therefore, that uh, my guest today is someone who's going to talk to us about that and many other things. Charles Coulant is from Los Angeles originally, um, and he's now living in Austria. He has toured the world speaking about the papacy and Catholicism. He's written numerous books on the subject and indeed on another possibly besieged institution, the monarchy. Thank you very much for coming, Charles. Thank uh, you it's very great much to see you here. Um, I mentioned that film at the beginning, but I understand you haven't seen it sort of on principle? Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, although I have to say that as soon as Francis was elected, my first thought was Price has to play him in the biopic. Right. Because he looks just like him. Yes, he does. So that was, that was a given. But uh, no, I, I'm not really keen on seeing it, partly because I really like Anthony Hopkins. And I, I know from people who've seen it, that uh, the, how do I put it, the popular press mind idea of Benedict as this terrible, evil, dictatorial fellow yeah. uh, who scammed his way into becoming Pope versus um, this wonderful, free, humble, holy person who came in, doubtless brought in by the Holy Ghost directly. Uh -huh. That was the point of view. Well, Mm. Uh, it's sort of, it's like certain historical films. I won't see them it's simply because I, I know this so biased, so twisted. It, it annoys you. Yes, it's just going to kind of wind you up, isn't it? Yeah, basically. And I've got so many things to do that already. I don't need more. Yes. Now it's true to say, isn't it, that uh, Charles, that you are a traditionalist when it comes to Catholicism. Um, right. I mean, you know, it's interesting because we start off. This week, actually, there's been this decision, hasn't there, by Francis II uh, not to allow married priests in the Amazon region. Now, that would appear to be a victory for the conservative part of the church, is it? Well, yes and no, no and yes. I mean, it is in the sense that... It is in the sense that it shows that the, uh, the Holy Father does give himself certain limits. Right. Um, and when I, what I've been hoping for throughout this pontificate is that he would have his humane vitae moment. Mm -hmm. And this may be it. Paul VI, who dominated my, uh, my childhood and early youth, uh, delighted in change. Mm -hmm. he, that, that generation of clerics and their immediate disciples, of which generation the current Holy Father is one, love change for change's sake. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's not alive, if it doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. So change as an end. Now, uh, the thing was that he came to a point beyond which he could not go. And then he dug in his heels and he paid the price horribly. Mm, mm. Because after Humane Vitae, the last 10 years of his pontificate were hell. Yeah. You know, his life um, from being popular, he became scorned. All right, well, during the course of this pontificate, which I have to say has gone pretty much the way I was afraid it would. Yeah. Uh, during the course of it, I've kept hoping that he would find a humane vitae moment where 
his basic faith would kick in and say, ah, no, I don't think, I don't think we're going to go that way. Um, I'm hoping this is it. Uh, not simply because of the issue involved, which is true enough on its own, but for his sake, say, as a man, as the Holy Father, as the Pope, because, you know, we're obligated to, uh, at the very least, try to respect him and to try to have some sort of affection for him. Isn't this sort of the case that people who like this Pope are the sort of people who don't like Popes generally? Well, that's you know? exactly. And yeah. the people who don't like the church. Yes, exactly. You yeah. know, I mean, let's put it this way. Uh, I was a comedian, as you know, years and years ago. No, you should explain. This was uh, when you were a younger man in Los Angeles, yes. right? On, on the Sunset Strip. Indeed, and had wow. brown hair. Okay. Right. But <laughs> way back then, uh, I mean, if I had been, you know, the sort of comedian people who don't like to laugh like, what sort of a comedian would I have been? Right, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. he'll confirm you in every every dreadful feeling you've got and you'll be suicidal by the time you're done with him. Yes. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't want to deal with a comedian like that. Well, similarly, you look at a politician, you know. Um, if, a, if a person in power makes you doubt your country, yeah. makes you unpatriotic or contrary-wise, if the enemies of your country love your leader, yeah, you've got a problem. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, it's the same here. Uh, we wouldn't say, for instance, that the uh, the Dalai Lama was a great Tibetan Buddhist if he said, "You know what? We should be eating meat." Yeah, <laughs> you know. I've now, changed my mind. <laughs> I, now, mind you, I'm an, I'm a meat eater. I yeah. love meat, but I don't think it would be a good thing for the Dalai Lama no, to come yeah. out for meat. Yeah, yeah. And then and, and continue to be Dalai Lama. Now, if he said, "I'm resigning because I want to eat meat," that's different. That's a matter of principle, and that I can respect. But if he were to get up there and say, well, I'm the Dalai Lama, and I would be having steak every night. Catch me at Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And there's this thing as well with this Pope as well, that there was this image of him being, wasn't there, very much uh, an informal Pope, one that cared about people. And then I remember, I think it was just before Christmas, this footage emerged of him, oh. uh, you know, sort of pulling his hand away. This woman, I think it was a Chinese lady, and yes. she was trying to touch him, and he pulled his hand away. And then, as a result, he looked very petulant. And as a result, uh, a lot of people went and did a bit of uh, archaeology on the internet. And there were quite a few instances like this. I mean, in other words, is the reality of the man different to the image? Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, they called it at the time the slap heard around the world. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, I wrote about it in Crisis Magazine. There I have a column. I'm sorry, was that a plug? But... Uh, the thing is that looking at the footage, and this is before I knew what had gone on, looking at the way she crossed herself, stared at him, and then grabbed his arm, I figured that she was probably trying to say something about the way he dealt with the church in China. Right. Um, the truth is that the Holy See, I mean, if words mean anything, the Holy See betrayed the underground church in China. Can you actually explain a bit more about this? Because there has been this. A lot of people watching won't know. But there was a. There was he. There was an agreement, wasn't there, with there the was. Chinese? But it's not worked out the way, has it? Well, it's 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 worked out precisely the way anybody who knew anything yes. thought it would work yeah. out. Yeah. You say if 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 you now maybe Justin Trudeau had a different idea. He doesn't know a lot, but um, that was an egregious swipe. And, yes. You know. Our oh, we like those. Don't minister. worry. Well. <laughs> I, I, Justin's too easy to bag out, I'm sorry. But the, the, the thing is, honestly, that uh, after the, the communists took over China in 1949, they 
separated the church in China. There was a schismatic national church, the Chinese Patriotic Association, bishops appointed by the Chinese Communist government, mm. um, and the the Pope basically deprived of any control over it. And then there was the underground church, bishops and so forth remaining loyal to Rome. And they were and continued to be persecuted horribly, from murder to imprisonment to you name it. And notice, you no know, one ever talks about this, you see. Mm-hmm. We always talk about China, but we never mention about what's going on. Mm. You see, that's, yep. I don't want to say we're a bunch of hypocrites, but it, it's tempting. Anyway, <laughs> what should happen But that he gets it into his head, our Holy Father does, apparently, with some pre- uh, pushing from Uncle Ted McCarrick, Cardinal McCarrick, the famous scandal person, uh, to come to an agreement with Beijing and to recognize the Patriotic Church as the Catholic Church in China, which he did. Mm. And this ended up with far more persecutions than what had been the underground church, uh, more, and even, tr- even persecutions of the Patriotic Church, mm. you see, because now there's nothing to hold over their heads. There's no whip hand, and they do whatever they want. But the Holy Father, being the sort of man he is, and the, of the generation of clerics he is, I think on some level is incapable of ever saying he's wrong, even if he feels it. Yeah, yeah. He just, if he did it, he did it. Mm. Well, I thought at the time when I watched that lady go off on him, I thought, you know, I'll bet anything she's going on about China. Yes. And that's exactly yeah. what it was. Right. Okay. That's, and now, mind you, later he met with her, which is nice, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly a good PR move. But he's not, the problem with him, I would say, is fivefold. Uh, number one, I do believe that at the bottom of it all, he has the faith of an Argentine immigrant kid, which is what he is. But he hasn't been back there, has he? He hasn't no. been back to his own country. Well, they know him there. Right, okay. There's, but it still shaped him. Yeah. You know. The second uh, thing about him, though, is that he's a product of the Jesuit educational system at the time that it was being dismantled. People forget this, but in the 60s, it was very willfully dismantled. Mm-hmm. The Jesuits at the time of Vatican II were brilliant. They knew tons of languages and so on and so forth. And they might have been horrible as people, mm. but they were very well educated. That's all gone. And so you could see this when he uses big words and he doesn't know what they mean. Yeah. Especially when he tries to be insulting. You know, if I were he and I said to you, you know what, Peter, you're a trilobite. Mm. You look at me and say, a trilobite? You're telling me that I'm a, a fossilized crustacean. Mm. Oh, that's not what trilobite means. <laughs> well, okay, if you say so. Yeah, yeah. That is the position. He, he, when he, he calls people uh, uh, neo-Pelagians and so forth. You know he doesn't know what the word means. Uh, it just it doesn't work. Anyway, the third thing I would say about him is that he is very, very much representative, as I said earlier, of his generation of priests. And the reason why I have not been surprised by him, as so many of my friends and colleagues have, especially the younger ones, is that when I was a kid, it seemed like every parish had uh, what we called the Vatican II priest. And he was going to come in and break up everything, throw out the statues, break up the altar rails, do this, do that, and on and on and on. If you questioned him in any way, he'd attack. Mm-hmm. It was often very brutal, very nasty, uh, but at the same time it was all for freedom and love and peace and truth and so on. Yeah. Well, a lot of him left the priesthood. Unfortunately, a lot of him stayed and became the bishops of the 80s and 90s. Uh, not all of them, of course, but 
And then one of them, sooner or later, had to be Pope. And here he is. Yeah. The fourth point I would make is that it's not really just about him or about the church, because that generation in leadership roles is always about self and not about the office. You, you can see this in government. You can see this uh, in, in industry. Uh, it's the sort of thing where if I were a city councilman, you know, and I'd say, Peter, being a city councilman is like the summation of my, my whole life. Mm-hmm. It's my life's journey's completion. I'm going on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And finally you say, uh, Councilman Coulomb, that's great. You ever get to fill the potholes, maybe get the trash picked up? Mm-hmm. Oh, Peter, that, that's the old city councilman. Mm-hmm. We don't do that anymore. And we don't wear jackets and ties at council meetings. Mm. It is uh, it, it, quite right. It's sort of like, uh, in this country, it seemed to come about very much with the Blair government. Yes. That kind of, that kind of approach, that sort of, as you say, the self being far more important than the office. Yep. Um, you know, and this is, uh, I admit there was a great line in the movie, The Iron Lady, about yes. Thatcher. I where she says, you know, you know in, in my day, we wanted to do something. Now people just want to be something. And I think that that's the point. The, the point really, Charles, about this is where does this leave the church? If you've got someone in it who is more concerned about the self, as it were, you know, could he destroy the church? Therefore? No, no. I mean, uh, you know, there's uh, the old joke of a cardinal when he was asked that question. Uh, he said, "We've been trying for two thousand years and we haven't succeeded," uh, <laughs> and it's 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 quite true. I uh, I was very fortunate in that I had as a confessor James Francis Cardinal McIntyre, who had been the Archbishop of LA and was retired when he took on the odious job of uh, monitoring my conscience. Right. Mm. Okay. I don't wish on anyone. But the Cardinal was a very funny man. He had a great sense of humor. But he had had a real life before he became a priest. He'd uh, been a runner on Wall Street and risen up to be off of the uh, partnership of a firm. And then he became a priest. So very practical, but also had a ton of faith, you know, which is the combination I've always liked. Mm. Tough as nails, but a complete believer. Mm. So he, uh, he used to say that... Uh, the, the biggest problem in a hierarchical church will always be the clergy. And at the top is the top. We've had popes, I, I wrote a history, uh, Vicars of Christ, uh, which, which I touch on, Francis, just as I mentioned it. Uh, another plug. <laughs> a, uh, but, we don't mind plugs, really. Well, that's, that's we fine. rely on them. <laughs> well, when I was a kid in the 60s, on every talk show, you'd always have something. Oh, and I'll be appearing at the Palladium. Oh, I'm sorry, was that a plug? <laughs> yes, it's it's a plug, trust me. Right, yeah. But seriously, um, the thing is that uh, we have had some really awful leadership in the 2,000 years of the church's history. Right. We had a whole century, the so-called pornocracy, the Iron Age in the 900s, when uh, popes were basically chosen by uh, noble Roman sluts. Mm. I mean, literally. It's, it's, there's no other way I can put it. Uh, the last really bad pope, I would say, uh, I mean, as in nobody defends him, is Julius III uh, in the 1550s. But you see, without him, the, the reform of Trent had already gotten underway, had begun. But a lot of the cardinals at the time were not happy with the way reform was going, so they said, all right, we'll put in someone who'll calm it down. Well, they did all right, mm-hmm. Julius III. His, the stench he left in everyone's nostrils was so great that they elected Paul IV after, and that was the beginning of the Tridentine reform really taking hold. Mm-hmm. So they all, I mean, that's one of the things that hit me about writing about every single one of these uh, popes. 
is how they all played their role. They all, even despite themselves, against yeah, themselves. Yeah. This is, which, if you think about it, in a sense, is true of all of us. But John the Twelfth, another one of my favorite bad popes, uh, tried to sell the papacy three times. Uh, was uh, died of the wounds his his mistress's lover inflicted on him in her arms. Mm. It was very romantic, you know, dying in her arms mm. like that. I've always wondered if uh, the husband went to hell for killing the pope or heaven for defending the marriage bond. I don't know, <laughs> but whichever it was, he was also the one who confirmed the Charter of Cluny, mm. and thus unwittingly set forth a period of reform in the church. So what I would say is that no single man can destroy the church, uh, much as we try. No, uh, it can look down, it can be persecuted, it can be corrupt, it can be this, it can be that, but it always bounces back. Uh, the, uh, there's a famous Boccaccio story uh, set during the Renaissance, oddly enough, when he was writing about a, a Frenchman in Paris who had a Jewish friend who was always trying to convert to Catholicism. And the Jewish friend wouldn't do it. Finally, he says, you know what? I'm going to go to Rome, and I'll see your Pope and Cardinals. And if your religion's true, I'll find out and I'll convert. And he says, oh, no, don't go to Rome. Don't, whatever you do, don't do that. No, no, I'm going. So off he goes. And the fellow thinks, ah, oh, that's it. He'll never come in now. A year and a half go by. He's walking down the street. There's his friend. He says, well, I'm back from Rome. I've converted. Let's go to Mass. I said, you've been to Rome? He says, yes. And you converted there? Yes. Well, wasn't it corrupt? Oh, horrible. The Cardinals? Disgusting. The Pope? Wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. And yet you converted? He says, absolutely. I realized that any organization that could be run by people like that this long and still survive had to be divided. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's, there's an echo of that uh, at the moment, in you know, the past 10, 20 years, uh, in the various sexual scandals that have gone on in the church. You know, again, there is this sense, I think, that Francis was kind of going to be a new pair of hands on this. It's not worked out that way, has it? It's the opposite. Yeah. Uh, he's been, uh, I mean, uh, and again, I, I can't say why, I can't pretend to read his mind, but he's surrounded himself with some of the most bizarre uh, criminals and pervs you can imagine mm, mm. and nobody says anything because the press love him you know mm. but uh, the every time you turn around somebody uh, is close to him is being indicted for something mm, mm. Um, and people again don't realize how effective Benedict had been mm. in bringing the thing to bay mm. uh, and mind you I say this as one who was writing about the scandals when no one else was back in the 80s I was quite aware of them. Well, I mean, I was aware of them growing up. But you see, in those days, and, I, and I'm speaking specifically of the American situation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was mirrored elsewhere. One of the reasons why nobody talked about it in the press was that, how do I put this nicely? So many of the major either offenders or enablers were darlings of the press. Yeah. Uh, the Archbishop of Milwaukee, Robert Weakland, for instance, this man was I remember when the when the scandals broke uh, he wrote in his diocesan paper that uh, many priests were being seduced by streetwise and sexually aggressive altar boys mm -hmm. 
And uh, yeah, other than yeah. giving me the vision of this priest going into a yeah. bar filled with altar boys sitting around, hey, Father, you want a drink? <laughs> yeah. well, I just came in to, to get out of the rain. Yeah. Of course you yeah. did, Father. We all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Apart from that, uh, Weakland was just horrendous in every sense. However, they loved him in the mm -hmm. press because he always said what they wanted to hear. So what happens? His uh, former uh, uh, lover comes out of retirement to demand money very publicly about four months before he's supposed to resign anyway, retire. And there's a big hullabaloo and things jump up and down. Well, the Los Angeles Times, that great beacon of something or other, uh, they reported it because they'd always loved Weakland. They called it, um, how do they describe it? Robert Weakland was a man who tried to move his church's uh, uh, sexual views into the 20th century, but fell victim to his own moral complexity. Oh, right. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, the next time yeah, I go to yeah. confession, I'm going to say, bless me, Father, for I've been morally complex. <laughs> yeah, great. I, <laughs> okay. Where's Francis going, Francis II? He's taken various positions. Obviously, you're, you know, you're an uh, American. Although, actually, I should mention as well that you have Canadian, French heritage, do you not, Charles? Indeed. Yeah. But uh, you're American. He's been... He's given veiled, isn't it, veiled criticism of Trump, for example. Mm. He said about, we don't build walls, do we? We don't, we're, we're not in the business of building walls. And it, you know, that's not what, you know, the church is about. So, I mean, obviously that's the criticism of Trump, isn't it? I mean... Who's to say? I mean, one of the things he loves doing is giving these oracular yeah. uh, pronouncements that could mean this or not. Yeah. Uh, he, in an interview he did with La Nación in Buenos Aires, he made a comment, he said that God has given me the gift of unawareness. Right. And I read that and I thought, well, he did the same thing for me, but I try to hide it you know, so people don't quite catch on. Uh, I think he likes being opaque. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure he doesn't like Trump because he's very much like him. He's very much like Blair. Um, Interesting point, that. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, they're going to do things their mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like it, mm -hmm. you know, my way or the highway, pal, mm -hmm. regardless of anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a comparison of the relative merits of Blair or Trump or mm -hmm. uh, the Pope, but it's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about me. Mm -hmm. I'm wonderful. Love me. No, you know, no. Mm -hmm. Your office I respect. Your office I may have to follow. But please, don't pretend you have any importance other than that. I mean, it's one reason I think that Holy Father decided to live in the uh, Hotel Santa Marta mm -hmm. rather than the Apostolic Palace. Because the palace, I mean, the Hotel Santa Marta is all about him. But the Apostolic Palace, you, you know, you walk around and you hear the walls saying, oh, hello, little Holy Father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful to see you. Mm. So, you know, soon you're going to be just like Leo XI. Mm. Oh, you don't remember him? No, neither does anyone else. <laughs> and they won't remember you. Yeah. Well, who wants to hear that, yeah. especially if you're of a generation based upon self? And again, I'm drawing with a very wide brush. Mm. But... You look at these characters, place after place, time after time, your comparison with Blair was spot on. I mean, imagine a man who comes riding into Downing Street, and he's going to get rid of the Lord Chancellor, and he's going to change the House of Lords, mm -hmm. and he's going to have cool Britannia, mm -hmm. you know, full Britannia, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
I think the thing is with, it, with this leads us, oh, you know, in a, in a beautiful segue into something else that's happened. But it's a, it would it would be it would be fantastic to hear your perspective on this, Charles. Uh, you're talking about self versus institution. Yeah. Um, we, we've just had a situation, obviously, as you know, where um, Prince, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have moved to Canada. Um, you could say that this is a case of basically self-growth and the need to be true to oneself has sort of overcome what you could have, you know, what was called duty, maybe, if you like, or a, a belief in the institution. Um, do you see it in that way? And I mean, where do you see, where do you see them going in, 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 in Canada? Not far. Not far. I, I mean, look, Meghan Markle and I have something in common. We were taught by the same nuns. Right. And they were crazy. I mean that in a bad way. Crazy as in... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that simply out of anecdotal thing. I mean, they, they were mad. They were absolutely mad. Mm. Um, and she became an actress. And you speak of, of woke. Well, the best comparison of the two of them that I can come up with is actually, believe it or not, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Now, Brad Pitt, way back when he did a film called Seven Years in Tibet. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, seven, years, seven years in the cinema. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I mean, it's not my idea of a good time. <laughs> but in those days, any actor that had anything to do with Tibet, from actually going there to watching a couple of tapes of the Dalai Lama, was considered to be brilliant and have all sorts of important insights. So he's being interviewed. and uh, He won my respect that day. He's being interviewed, and the lady says, uh, well, now that you've done this film about Tibet, do you have any deep spiritual or, or political insights to share? And he looks at her and says, uh, ma'am, I'm an actor. Mm -hmm. All I know is acting. I have political and religious views, but they're not really very important because I don't know a lot. Mm -hmm. And I sat there. I was like, yeah, Brad, you show him. Well, what happens? He takes up with Angelina Jolie, yeah. who... Never saw a crazy car she couldn't get behind. Uh, and he, he embraces the whole thing. So, Mutatis Mutandis, I look at uh, Prince Harry, who prior to taking up with her, seemed like a you know, fairly decent fellow, a bit harem scarum as we say, but uh, you know, amiable, uh, willing to do his bit. I mean, you wouldn't expect him to be a, a nuclear physicist, but... For what it was, it was fine. Mm. Then she comes along, and suddenly he's embracing everything mad that she embraces. Now, there is, I think, and again, this is just me thinking, and I, I don't claim any infallibility, but I, my parents are actors, and I've grown mm. up around the industry mm. my whole mm. life. Um, a lot of actors suffer from a feeling of unimportance, of irrelevance. Mm. You know, uh, I get paid money for doing what? And unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I happen to feel that acting craft is a very important one and a worthwhile one. And there should be no reason to think that way. But they do, mm -hmm. some of them. And so what do they do? They try to fill up with their need to feel useful or relevant or whatever with these crusades. And they do. But again, because their backgrounds, even as Brad Pitt said in the long ago, usually don't lend them to uh, having useful opinions. They're taken for a ride by anything that comes along. Mm. And because of their, their uh, visibility, 
their views get a respectability they wouldn't have if you heard them from the waitress in the, in the cafe. So she gets him on this particular gravy train. And I am, as to what will happen, I'm not surprised at what did happen, frankly. Um, my suspicion is that it won't last mm-hmm. and that he'll end up coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope for the, their children's sake he comes back with the kids in tow. The thing is, Charles, with this, is that this really does uh, uh, sort of bleed into what we're saying, really, that when Meghan Markle talks about, you know, compassion and wanting to be involved in all of these things, I'm not, okay, it, it looks fine, but you sort of, you can't help thinking, you know, why just you? You know, you know it's, it's oh. like the implication is that I'm not compassionate or that I need to be told. This is the, this is the thing that actually, I think, gets under people's skin. Really. And with good reason. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is, she went into a, into a system, into a situation that is what it is, all right? Mm-hmm. If you don't like that, you shouldn't go into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she knew what she was getting into. I mean, she's not stupid. She may be a little nuts, but she's not stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to go into a system like that and say, oh, I'm going to change it, which again is a pattern we see over and over and over again, um, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, don't do it. Uh, honestly, and I, I, you'll, you'll never hear this from anyone else, but frankly, I think that if uh, Wallace Simpson had been made princess consort for Edward VIII, I think she would have done a much better job than this one. Yeah, because is. she admired the system. I mean, she had her problems. I'm not saying she was a great woman. But she admired the system. She wanted to be a part of it. And she probably would have done, you know, so she wouldn't have been the queen mother, that's for sure. But she would have done as decent a job as she could. Mm. I think this lady from the very beginning wanted to do what she wanted to do. And when I when I heard that she'd forbidden her husband from hunting, you know, which is uh, royals hunt. Mm-hmm. You don't like it? Well, you know what? Box is box. So don't go to the boxing match. Mm-hmm. Um then, when they, when they named their son Archie, really? Mm-hmm. How about Bobo or Bubbles or <laughs> Tiffany? Why not Tiffany? Because, <laughs> what's the next thing we hear, not directly, but from their friends, oh, they're going to the, uh, raise the kid gender neutral. Mm. No, it is incredibly sort of, it just, it just really, as I say, gets under people's skin, did get under people's skin. Sure. He was hugely popular before, actually, him. Um, but, uh, uh, Charles, this is a very interesting point. You are a great promoter of the idea of monarchy. Mm. I don't just mean the British monarchy, I mean monarchy in the abstract. Mm. And you, in fact, you go further than that. You believe in absolute monarchy, aren't you? And, and well, you know, proper monarchy is what you'd maybe call it. Yes, let me, let me make a point here. Absolute monarchy, in the sense that people think of it, doesn't exist. Right. We live in an absolute state where our masters can alter the nature of humanity. Uh, They can alter the nature of marriage. Henry VIII couldn't do that. He had to go through all sorts of hoops to pretend what he was doing was legal. But he had to pretend somehow to abide by the law. Mm. But our lords and masters in the judiciary and in legislatures across the West, they do whatever they want and will bark like dogs, they tell us. So immediately when you say monarchy, people begin to say, oh, well, stop, you've already accepted a government wilder than any monarch had ever had. Mm. So that's Mm. the first thing we have to bear in mind. Having said that, 
Um, my uh, ideal is not really what were called the absolute monarchies of the uh, of the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth centuries, because in a real sense they did pave the way for the revolutions that followed, through centralizing, through creating what has become the modern state apparatus. And eventually that modern state realized it didn't need them anymore, and poof, mm. off they went. Or they got tamed, Yeah, as, well, the Netherlands. Anyway. But I would say that, you know, whether, you know, okay, monarchy, and obviously traditional uh, Catholic, um, these things might have marked you out. I mean, you have really, in some ways, pr- plowed a, a lonely far in you know in choosing these things i mean you know if you grew up in in los angeles uh you know and you know how i wonder how um those passions if you like were you know founded for you i mean how how did they come about they they're not immediate ones for an american teenager that is a fair question uh i think part of it well there were two things one my family Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the sense that they were uh, monarchists, but they were certainly very traditional Catholics. And they didn't have the prejudice against monarchy that many Americans have. Uh, my dad, being French-Canadian, was very much aware that the House of Bourbon sent us to Canada. Mm-hmm. And he had a good bit of Scots blood, and so he was something of a Jacobite supporter. Uh, my mother was very fond of the Habsburgs and the Romanovs. So, uh, and of course, Disliking the French Revolution intensely is part of the old French Canadian ethos. Right. So, those things were all dancing around, and there were other things. My my mother's uh, the English side of my mother's family were uh, uh, loyal. Uh, having said all of that, I could see in the world around me, the world of the sixties and seventies, how the opposite principles mm-hmm. had triumphed and what they had produced. Mm-hmm. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. You know, if you look at what the uh, commentators, shall we say, and these are the French Revolution or whatever you like, what they, the conclusions they drew, we have incarnated. We are nasty and we are cruel. We're bloodthirsty. We have no, no real care for custom or human life. We're all about ourselves. And that's exactly what was predicted would happen. Thank you very, very much for coming in, Charles. Thank you very, very much. Uh, That's it for So What You're Saying Is This Week. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for watching. And do subscribe, please. Thank you.